Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recaps to see what's happening in the financial markets, led, of course, by my good friend, Lance Roberts. Lance, been a long week, buddy. How you doing? I'm exhausted. Let's just get this thing over with. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look, we'll just jump right to the end. Um, but 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 we're going to get there via a long, circuitous and very involved route. OK, probably going to take about an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, all right. So last week, we spent a lot of time talking about how the markets were trading in this compressing wedge. And you said, OK, we're at, the, at the latest, we're going to know by some mid-February date which way this thing breaks out. And uh, at the end of the week, uh, S&P with 4,100. I'm not sure if that's an official breakout of that wedge yet, but uh, it's a pretty big move since we talked last week. What are you thinking? Are we seeing a breakout in process? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so what you're looking for to confirm a breakout. So so let's step back just a little bit to bring everybody up to speed just in case uh, they missed last week's show. Um, what we were talking about is, is that if you draw a line from the peak of the market in January of 2022 across each one of the peaks coming down since then, and then draw a line along the bottoms from the October lows to the most recent bottom, what you had was this, this wedge that was compressing prices more and more. Well, if you draw these lines out until they actually intersect, that date was February the 17th. So I said, absolutely, at the latest, this compression is going to resolve itself technically in one direction or the other by no later than February 17th, because that's just where these two lines intersect. Well, this week, um, we actually broke above that trend line, came back and actually retested it, had a really, really good retest on Wednesday, bounced off of that, finished positive and above that trend on Thursday, and uh, sorry, on Wednesday, and then on Thursday and Friday, broke above the recent tops here. So you now have a confirmed breakout to the upside. And this really sets targets uh, for the S&P anywhere between about 4,100 and 4,300. So uh, if you take a look at some Fibonacci retracement levels uh, from the January highs, uh, there's a couple of levels in here that you know we could potentially rally up to. Markets are not exceedingly overbought yet um, on the S&P, um, but if you take a look at um, markets like emerging markets, international, those are extremely, those are like three standard deviations overbought. So I would be taking profits in those areas, uh, beginning to reduce some risk, but the S&P still has, the S&P and the NASDAQ still have a little bit more to go here. Okay. Um, yeah. And it does seem like for the time being, at least, that risk is back on. So uh, Tesla up 20% in the past 48 hours. Uh, it's, uh, up, it's up It's up 80% from the lows. Up 80% from the lows. And when did it hit those lows? October. October. Okay. Yeah. So just crazy, but on fire the past couple of days. Uh, Bitcoin is up 40% in the past month. Um, so all of a sudden, capital is really starting to flow into the really battered speculative plays that got so bruised in 2022. And it seems like you think the party's going to rage on here for a bit more. Well, um, you know, we wrote an article. Um, I think it was either late November. I think it was late November. We wrote an article on our website. If you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, there's a little search bar at the top. If you type in the word FANG at the top, you'll come up with this article we wrote called Are the FANG Stocks Dead? Because everybody was saying, Fang stocks are dead. You know, you, you can't own them anymore. They're all going to zero. That's where all the money's been flowing to ever since the beginning of the year. NASDAQ is grossly outperforming the, the uh, S&P and the Dow. Um, leaders have been Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, 
you know, in fact, we bought more Microsoft earlier this week on their earnings, uh, on the earnings announcement. But, you know, that's where money's gravitating to. And again, we talked about this before, you know, you always got to be careful about chasing what was hot, right? So it was commodities and basic materials last year. Nobody wanted to own tech or bonds. And now tech is running because money started to gravitate towards what's been beat up. So, you know, it's, it's been a good trade now. Well, that, that's not going to last. But, you know, you know, companies like NVIDIA have, are up 100% from their lows. So there's there's been a lot of money made in some of these beaten up tech stocks over the last three months. Okay. And, and I want to go into your comment there of it's not going to last, right? So I think a lot of investors, for better or worse, they kind of think in calendar years, right? Yeah. So they think, okay, 2002 was what it was. Brand new year here. You know, everything's up tech stocks, tech darlings back off to the races. That's going to be the trend for 2023. Maybe I got to get in now. Right. Um, sounds like maybe, I mean, you just said you put some capital to, to work in Microsoft, but I don't hear you ringing the bell that says, okay, folks, we're back to the old playbook. Everybody jump into, you know, speculative tech here, and it's going to be a great ride for the rest of the year. I, I heard you say earlier, but clarify this. Is this more of a Let's say this thing does rally up to 4,300. Is, is it a way to just say, great, this is the universe giving us a chance to kind of sell at some higher prices here, but, but you know, things might roll over after that? Well, look, you're definitely going to have a pullback, right? Uh, you know, markets have already had a big run. Um, you're starting, and, and like I said, if you take a look at emerging markets, international markets, um, uh, mid cap, small cap, they're all trading at three, two and three standard deviations above their, their moving right. average. So the rubber bands for those categories are, are super stretched. They're, they're, they're already well stretched. So I'd be taking profits there. The S&P, the NASDAQ, they're not quite there yet, but they're getting there, right? If we, if we get up to 42, 4,300, somewhere in that range, I'm not, I'm not saying an exact number, but, you know, we're going to start hitting those upper levels of that deviation of the, of the moving averages. And so you're going to have a correction. And, you know, look, there's a lot of things with, that could cause a correction uh, in the next week, right? Because you've got the Federal Reserve next week, uh, Jerome Powell coming out. Financial conditions are now easier today than they were in March of 2022. So this rally, along with uh, an increase in consumer confidence, is easing financial conditions, which is exactly the opposite of what the Fed wants. And so the Fed's going to hike rates by 25 basis points next week. But don't be surprised if Jerome Powell comes out and says, hey, we're still hiking. We're going to five, five and a quarter, um, you know, because he needs to get those financial conditions back down a bit. So uh, and this is why, like, for instance, we bought Microsoft because they announced earnings. And, and one thing that we've been looking for is companies that announce earnings with poor guidance, which is what, exactly what they had, and the stock rallies on it. That suggests that, that a lot of that bad news is potentially already priced in. Now, mind you, we didn't start a new position in Microsoft. We've owned Microsoft for a long time. Uh, we just we, uh, we had sold Microsoft very early last year, taking a lot of profits out of it. Uh, so we're just kind of basically building back into our position now. Um, but we're all starting to add some very, you know, kind of big dividend um, stocks as well or our portfolio, which will hedge against a rotational market in the course of the summer. So if we start to see a slowdown uh, economically this summer, which, you know, we will, um, then some of these bigger dividend yielding stocks that have not really performed great so far this year should pick up the brunt of hedging the portfolio and creating income while we wait. Okay. Um uh, I was going to get to this later, but you brought it up. So maybe I'll get to it right now, which is 
you talked about how loose financial conditions are right now, yeah. right? And the fact that we have a Fed meeting coming up next week. Um, do you think that Powell, you know, may need to come out and pull another Jackson Hole, where he basically just says, look, you guys are just getting way too ahead of where I want you to be. Um, I, I need to engineer that pain because I need to get inflation killed, not just subdued for a while, but killed, right? And, and in addition to these financial conditions loosening, the official jobs numbers are still good, right? And you and I can debate whether they map to reality or not, but that these are the numbers that the Fed is using, right, yep. to gauge it, its policy by. CPI is still high. I mean, the most recent number we have is 6.7%. Yes, it's coming down. We're going to talk a little bit more about the trajectory of that and all, but that's still a really high CPI, right? Yep. And uh, uh, PCE, which the Fed looks at even more, um, is still pretty elevated here. I mean, it's starting to come down a little bit, but but nowhere it's it's still like you know five times where it was back at the end of 2020, right? Way from from where the Fed wants it to be. So does Powell need to really you know bring the hammer down again and say, look, guys, I am trying to tighten financial conditions, and you guys keep undoing everything I'm trying to do. No, that, that's exactly his problem. So, you know, one thing we've said is that, you know, the Fed's going to make a mistake here. Um, if you take the three-month average of CPI, it's 1.8%. So technically, we've already got inflation where it needs to be. If you keep running inflation where it is right now, we're going to be 2 2.5% by the end of the year. Um, so the Fed, but the Fed's not looking at this, right? The Fed's looking at that 6.7% and they go, we got to keep hiking rates. We've got to get that down more towards our target of 2%. Now, now remember, we had this conversation last week. It's a very, it's it's a very important point. The Fed is not saying we need to get inflation to two percent, which is their target. They say we need a sustained trend towards two percent. So as long as inflation is continuing to drop towards two percent, that's their goal. And to your point, Adam, what they want is a control burn in asset prices. Um, in 2010, Ben Bernanke said. The reason we're doing QE is to boost asset prices, which boosts consumer confidence. Well, ever since October, the market's been rallying. And guess what consumer confidence has done? It's actually improved, which is exactly not what the Fed wants. The Fed wants people to be more fearful. He wants to control burn in asset prices. He needs those prices to come down, but he doesn't want them to crash, right? He doesn't want a financial calamity on his hands. He just wants them to come down some more. So, you know, this is so, yeah, I, I certainly expect next week that he delivers some pretty harsh language, uh, kind of a little spanking for the markets would not be surprising. Yeah. And let me just dig into that a little bit further. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with John Hathaway the other day um, and John, super well respected, you know, very veteran investor, you know, very focused in the precious metal space, but but but, you know, respected by folks of all stripes. <clears throat> um and first off, you know, he, he his opinion is similar to many others that that the Fed does not, you know, Powell does not want to be another Arthur Burns, right? He does not want to get inflation down, change policy, and then have inflation spike back up again, right? right. He wants the fire to be extinguished, not not just reduced to a smolder. So, you know, to your point about wanting to see the, the right trajectory, I, I agree with you on that. I'm just wondering, though, if he really wants to see more than just a good trajectory. If, you know, he, I, I think he wants a belt and suspenders approach here where, maybe. yeah, maybe it doesn't have to be under two, you know, two or under yet, but it's probably going to be, a, I, I think he wants to be closer to that than not, yeah. right? Yeah, I think if he's sub five, sub four, you know, he's going to start getting a lot more comfortable with his position, right? So... 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I just wonder, and I don't know. But you know, um, you know, if, if he's willing to let go at four, is there a fear still in his mind that, like, I don't know, maybe this thing boomerangs on me at some point, right? Well, uh, you know, theoretically, if you listen to what they're saying, they've only got three more rate hikes in the. So he's already said, being, you know, to to kind of pause and wait for the lag effect to catch up, and so right. theoretically quarter basis point next week, quarter basis point the next meeting, quarter basis point. The market is already predicting they'll be cutting rates by June. Right. Which, which as we said before, is kind of ironic because if the employment's good and if inflation's coming down and if the markets are doing great and everybody's happy, consumer confidence is coming up, why cut rates? I mean, that's nirvana for the Fed, right? I leave rates high, keep running down my balance sheet. Right. I'm for the next recession. Exactly. I've got all this room yeah. to cut for the next recession. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we've talked about this. A pause, you know, is <laughs> pausing and holding for a long period of time, which is what Powell said he wants to do. That's still highly constrictive to economic growth, you know, <laughs> with cost of capital at this, this rate. So it's not like it's easy times if we're just hanging out at five, five and a quarter, right? right? So, all right, so there's that. But then also John said something that was interesting I wanted to get your reaction to. He said, he said, you know what, there's all this talk about what the Fed, you know, might think about where asset prices are. And he said, I don't think the Fed cares where asset prices are. They don't care if they're high, they don't care if they're low. And of course, there's a lot of people that'll say, well, of course, they want them to be high because other banker buddies want, you know, high assets. But he basically says, you know, chair of the Fed doesn't care about that. All he wants is he just doesn't want markets to be disorderly. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, so to, to a certain extent, he's like, he doesn't care how much pain he causes the markets as long as it, in your words, if it's a controlled burn, he's totally cool with that. Right. He just doesn't want it to, to break and run away in some way that he has to intervene to fix it. That, no, that's that's absolutely right. And, and so, you know, lower asset prices for him is what he wants. Again, going back to what Ben Bernanke said, you know, in 2010, we were trying to get the economy off the mat, right? So we're just coming through the financial crisis. Everybody, you know, consumer confidence is still very low. Um, and if you want to create economic growth, you need consumers to have confidence. Well, what do we have today? We have very low consumer confidence. They're not, the outlook isn't great. You poll people and they, they're like, 70% of people think the economy is going in the wrong direction. The other 30% that think it's doing fine are the ones that live in their parents' basement. Um, but, you know, this is the environment that what the Fed needs is they need that consumer to be cloudy and to be, you know, not be happy. They need that because that means they'll constrict spending. And this is the old savings paradox, right? If they save money, it slows the economy. But that's what they want because that's that slower demand is what brings down inflation, allows inventories to build because people aren't buying as much, which means that producers and and wholesalers and, and retailers et cetera, have to cut prices, get rid of inventory that brings down those prices. So, again, that's what the Fed wants. Right. Uh, with, but to your point, exactly is what they don't want is a financial crisis on their hands. And they, they don't they don't want to run on the banks. They don't want people just liquidating everything at hot because then that causes all kinds of other problems. And, you know, the bigger risk, you know, inflation is one thing. We talked about this before. Inflation is certainly a, is, is problematic for the economy and it's problematic for the Fed. But what the real problem for the, for the Fed is, is deflation, right? Inflation will cure itself because at some point people will just stop spending and inflation will come down. The problem with deflation 
is it's a psychological mindset. Once you get into deflation, people keep expecting prices to go lower, and that's a very hard cycle for the Fed to break. So the, the inflation that they're trying to fix, they just need some lower prices, need a little bit of time. But what they can't do is create some type of event that leads to deflation, not disinflation. That's not inflation going back towards two. We're talking about negative rates of inflation. That's a very hard cycle to break. And that's the one thing that the Fed really doesn't want. Yeah. And I'm curious how, you know, they, they were totally worried about deflation up until the past year. Right. And then they had to scramble and it's all about inflation. How much of an eye do they have to deflation right now? Like, is the Fed capable of playing a short and a long term game here or do they just react to one thing? I right. Well, they just react to inflation until they start getting scared about deflation again. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. You know, really, but this has been the playbook of the Fed. The Fed has never been proactive about anything. And here, here's, a, here's a great example of this. Right. So in 2020, right. We we have the shutdown of the economy, and you know, so they come in and say, "Great, we're going to start buying junk bonds. We're going to, you know, do QE. We're going to uh, the government's going to inject liquidity into the markets." Now, any monkey with a pencil and an eraser could figure out that was going to cause inflation. And so, when the economy in the third quarter, when you had this massive surge in economic growth, right? So you had you had a, a massive drawdown of like 30% in the economy in quarter two. Quarter three, you had like a 30% increase in economic growth. You cut off, all, you know, this is where the Fed should have just stopped everything. We're, you know, we're going to raise interest rates to, to 4%. We're stopping QE because we've got all this liquidity into the system. And they had plenty of, they, they had to know that this was going to wind up causing inflationary problems. And they were never proactive. They never stopped until way too late of doing, you know, reducing, started to reduce their balance sheet and started to hike rates. They were way late to that game. But it's always because they're, and this is the way they always process throughout history. You go back and look at every single cycle throughout history. The Fed starts doing something and then they realize they break something, then they react to it. And then they have to react when they realize that they've broken something and now they've reacted to it, they have to reverse it in the other direction to get it back on track. So, you know, it's just it's just always a reaction basis with the Fed. It's never a proactive measure. All right. Well, um, you know, I'll, I'll make my last question here on the Fed and then I want to go to a, a related question. But like, what do you think Powell could do here to try to, you know, scare the market here into behaving a little bit more? Right. I mean, he, he obviously, I mean, I guess he could say I'm going to go back to a half a point hike or whatever. That's, if you if you really wanted to shock the market on Wednesday, hike by half a point. I yeah. mean, the, there's a, the, the markets right now are predicting a hundred percent chance of a 25 basis point rate hike. So if you really wanted to, to smack the market down a bit, go hike 50 basis points. You know, I don't think he will. I think he'll do 25 basis points. And he'll deliver a very hawkish message that says, we're not done hiking rates yet. We're still targeting probably above 5%, maybe more. We're going to hike rates until, you know, X, Y, Z occurs. And we need to see softness in, in wages or softness in employment before we stop hiking rates. You know, so he could he could deliver some, you know, as we've always talked about before, a big, a big chunk of the Fed's monetary policy tools is verbal direction. And so, you know, that verbal language that he comes out with can certainly have and certainly will have a big impact on the market. The risk he runs is this market is geared, this, this market is ready to explode higher. 
And all he's got, if he comes out and says, we're hiking 25 basis points, and if he alludes to any issue that that like 25 basis points and they're done, this market's going to be up a lot very quickly. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I just recorded a, a really fascinating discussion with Jim Rickards. Um, and Jim said, there's really kind of three stories going on right now. He said, there's the Fed story where the Fed is saying, um, you know, inflation's our number one priority. We're going to do what it takes to get that thing down. I'm going to get up to five, five and a half percent. I'm going to hold it there. Uh, he thinks the Fed is basically saying, yeah, this pause could, could last throughout the rest of the year. Right. Yeah. Like until early 2024, the way the Fed's looking at it. Right. Like we're going to we're going to hang out there and see what happens. Right. We're going to wait for the delayed effect of all our previous hikes to hit the system. We're going to just make sure nothing's breaking, but we're just going to watch. Right. Um, and uh, and then there's the stock market story, which is uh, the Fed. Fed's not going to be able to do all that. Right. And it's going to it's going to pivot sooner. It's going to realize it's over tightened and it's going to pivot and we're going to have a soft landing. Right. And, and I know you wrote a piece about uh, whether a soft landing is a reality or a myth, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the market is now fully on the soft landing train, it looks like. Right. It's on the Goldilocks scenario. Absolutely. Then, then Jim said, and then there's reality. <laughs> it's like, if you look at all the data. It suggests that the Fed is, is not only going to over tighten, it probably already has. Right. And it's just digging a deeper grave for itself. And it's making the coming recession way worse than it would otherwise need to be. And that, you know, to Powell's, word of pain, you know, we're going to have a hell of a lot more pain than even Powell, you know, is prepared for coming up here. And I do just want to note, if we look at the macro numbers, they all suck. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the manufacturing, ISM manufacturing and services numbers are down. The consumer spending's down. Um, I was just reading a piece by Mike Shedlock, Mish, uh, who, uh, you know, I'll put up a chart here, but he said that retail sales, they it basically hit a wall in November and they fell off a cliff in December, right? Um, and uh, uh, you know, you and I have talked about how uh, consumer revolving credit, credit cards, et cetera, is shooting the moon right now. The savings rate's the lowest it's been in a long time. Um, and, and what's driven what's driven asset prices um, forever, and we we had a table up last week that showed that in every year since 1960, the money supply as measured by M2 has increased. Now, 2022 is the first year it's decreased. And now if you look at the chart of money supply, whether you're looking at M1, M2, or M3, they are all rolling over in a way that has never happened in the data series before, right? So I feel like there is this war of narratives right now, right? There's the feds, there's the markets, and then there's reality. Um, I find it hard not to listen and take team realities data more seriously, but I'm curious, what do you think? Well, you know, the, the, you know, the one thing you've got to be careful of is, you know, when you're looking at data and data will, will evolve, right? So, you know, right now there's the economic data is very negative. Right? I mean, if you look at you know consumer confidence, you look at CEO confidence, you look at ISM, you look at services, manufacturing, uh, the Chicago Fed National Activity Index, the leading economic indicators, um, you know, are at a level. The six-month rate of change um, is at a level that always, 100% of the time, precedes a recession. So, you know, there's you know it, it's as we've said before here talking about this, it's hard to make the argument that we're not gonna have a recession. So, you know, but the problem is, and the thing we've gotta be careful of is that the market also knows that. And so what markets are looking at, and if you take a look at the market itself, 
markets historically bottom six to nine months before earnings actually trough because markets are looking ahead saying, okay, I think we're probably already seeing the worst of the issues coming. And and again, this time may be certainly different, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that everybody's kind of in the, we're going to have a terrible recession. It's going to be horrible. Um, you know, I think we're going to have a recession, but look, we're, we just clicked off 2.9% growth in the fourth quarter of GDP. That brought the average last year to about 1% GDP all year long. So if you average all four quarters, you get about 1% growth. So it's not going to take a lot to drop the economy. We clip off 1% in economic growth over the course of the next quarter, you know, we'll, we'll be at that kind of that recessionary trend. Um, you know, there's some indicators you look at, like, for instance, uh, personal income, um, you know, less transfers, that's at levels that have always pre- preceded recessions. So, you know, we're going to have, it's, it's hard to suggest we're not going to have a recession. What we have to try to figure out is, has the market already priced in the recessionary outcome? I don't have that answer, right? But since October, the market has been improving. And if you actually take a look at what's happening with the markets since October, despite the, the flow of bad economic news, the markets have been improving. The question now is, is what happens to the narrative if economic data is still negative, but becomes less negative over the course of the next several months and starts an improvement trend as well? So again, these are the things we've got to be careful of, you know, kind of boxing ourselves into a corner and saying, oh yeah, I'm out of the market because you know, we're going to have this nasty end of the world recession. There's no guarantee of that. And you got to watch the data for potential improvement. So absolutely. And as we've talked about, this is the year of the audible, right? You're going to be <laughs> making audible calls every week. I yeah. guess my question, and this this goes to the spirit of your, your recent piece here about the soft landing being a possibility or a Fed myth, um, is we have these very conflicting narratives here. Um, and the question is, is, looking at the data you know i think it's it's easier to say the markets the market narrative might be incorrect um now you, you could be right which is hey you know maybe the market actually knows even more right and 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 the economic conditions are going to start improving and and the markets get their green light but um uh you know it, it's hard for me to look at at the, at, at the market story, and, and I'm not trying to say this is what's going to happen. I'm just trying to be an avatar for the viewer here. Sure, sure. Say, you know, I, I'm I'm trying to make the market's case for it, and I'm looking for points of of validation. And and the only points of validation, pretty much, I can find right now, is that asset prices are higher, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I I guess where I'm going with this is you as a guy that has to navigate this. For clients, right? You 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 have to deal with the market you have, right? Um, so you find ways to play it, but um, you also got to be asking yourself, okay, if the market is mistaken here, I got to make sure that if it wakes up to that fact, I'm not in a position where I just you know get get drowned in the downdraft that happens from there on, right? So so what so so, so to your point here, how are you determining if the soft landing is a myth or a reality? Well, well well first of all let's let's clarify the difference between a soft landing, you know, to start with, which is a soft landing is a downturn in economic growth that does not involve a recession. And so or a bad uh, recession, we'll say. 
No, no, just even a recession period. Even a recession period. Just, just okay. a soft landing. So if you go back and look, so so there's a, the first chart that is in that article is a chart of the Fed funds rate and the S&P 500 and recessions. And what you'll see in that chart is, is that there's three periods in history where the Fed was hiking rates and did not cause a recession. So there's the, so that's technically a soft landing. They hike rates, they slow things down, there's no recession, and then they start cutting rates again and everything's fine. Every other time they've, they've hiked rates, they've caused a recession. So- right. You know, so track record isn't well. However, you've got to be careful with that, right? So the definition of a soft landing is no recession, but the second chart overlays the Fed hiking cycle and crises throughout history. And those three periods where there wasn't a recession, there was a crisis like savings alone, continental Illinois, you know, there's there's all these other consequences that weren't great economically. It just didn't trigger the economy into a recession. So what is clear is that every time the Fed's been on a rate hiking campaign, they have either caused a recession, a bear market, a crisis, or a combination thereof. So they're really that. So the, the conclusion of the article is is that yeah, they may get a soft landing, but cause a financial crisis or something, um, and we don't have a recession, but we have something else that that you know drops the market and, and creates uh, you know another downdraft in prices. But you know, rate hikes have an issue, and, and rate hikes have a, a consequence for markets. But again, you know, this doesn't mean that again, I've been getting just a, a litany of emails of the world is about to end, the dollar, you know, we're gonna def- the debt ceiling is gonna crash everything. Um, you know, just calm down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if by, by the way, look, if you're in the camp that believes the world is about to end. We're going to know it well in advance, right? So just because you're invested today in the markets and participating with markets going up, whatever, doesn't mean that you can't get out of the markets because you'll know whatever. If there's going to be an issue where we're going to default on debt or, you know, the 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 international currency, you know, trade is just about to blow up. We're going to have plenty of advance notice. Yeah. It's not, you're not going to wake up one morning and, and it'll, you look outside and there's like apocalypse and people walk around with gas masks and zombies, right? Right. It's going to take a little time to get there. But but let's let's push that to the side for a second, because yeah. I think that is a much smaller element that is worried about that those type of tail risks. But I think that the rational thinker is saying there's a lot of data that suggests, including the charts you just showed, right, yeah. <laughs> that... Um, that, that there's going to be highly likely to be a recession this year and one that could be pretty bad if the Fed is indeed over tightening the way that we said. We look at all the, the charts of the data I just mentioned about two minutes ago yeah. um, and, and say, OK, look, you know, in, 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 until we see some bottoming of that data and it start turning around, it's hard to make a case that a company like Tesla should be up 80 percent or that, you know, S&P 4500 or plus. Right. Well, you got so two things. One, so you, you got to separate out two things. So, first of all, companies are specific, right? Absolutely. Um, so, just like real estate's local, right? We can exactly. talk about the trends, but the individual companies themselves, yeah, different so, story. So, but, you know, so look, the market, the market, right? The market was down 20% last year. Now, historically, that is not down enough to offset the risk of a recession, right? Because we need two things to occur uh, during a, a market decline. We need the recession to come in 
And that brings prices down and resets valuations in the markets back to a lower level. Okay. Right. Let, let, let me just add to that. You're kind of making the assumption there too that the December 2021 prices were fair value, <laughs> where you know we were making the argument at the time that that the rubber band was super stretched at that yeah, point. But but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, the, like 2019 prices were really stretched then too. But the, the whole thing about a recession and a bear market is that realigns valuations with earnings, right? So valuations come down, prices come down, realigns companies with earnings, those type of things. There's a lot of companies in the market right now that are down 60, 70, 80, 90% from their peaks. They, right, they got crushed. They have been through a major market reset. Unfortunately, the way the market is calibrated because of market cap weightings, a lot of the bigger companies, yeah, Apple's down, Amazon's down 40, 50%, but it didn't drag the overall market down enough because everybody was hiding out in other large cap companies like ExxonMobil, Procter Gamble, you know, these type of companies, these big, you know, large cap companies. And that was helping and through this was through passive indexing, buying uh index ETFs. But that was keeping these market, the market itself remained elevated while there was this underlying devastation in the rest of the market. So you know, for for Tesla to be up eighty percent, I think I think we talked about this when Tesla was down near its bottoms, but it was so washed out. Everybody had been shorting the crap out of it. I mean, there were so many shorts; it was so washed out. Its RSI was at a level that had never existed in history. Um, you're going to get a reflex of bounce, and once you start getting that reflex of bounce, all those shorts have to cover. You get the short squeezes. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Higher. So, you know, so the, the point about this is, is that, and again, this goes back to what I was saying is like, you know, we've got to be careful of having these one-sided bets where we're convinced that the recession is going to be terrible. It's going to be, you know, this, this just, you know, depressionary position in the economy and stocks are going to go to zero. That's not going to happen. We're going to have, we're, we're going to have a recession. And, and what happens if the recession is not as bad as you expect? What if it's what if it's negative two percent growth? Right, that's still a pretty good recession, but it's not negative thirty that we saw back in March of twenty twenty. Right, so you know there's there's degrees of recession as well, and and all that means is, and this is where you've got to come back to your fundamentals of investing, and saying, okay, let's have a recession. Let's say it's a 5% drawdown of GDP. What does that mean to the earnings of the company that I own? Or is the price of the company I'm buying today fairly priced relative to its earnings potential, even in a recessionary environment? And this is why, this is why in a recession, you want to gravitate away from stocks like basic materials, industrials, commodities, et cetera, because those are the most cyclically tied to an economic recession. And you want to move into stocks that typically have the ability to generate earnings, even in a recessionary slowdown, because people have to buy underwear, toothpaste, toilet paper, et cetera. Right, right. You know what I really like about that answer? Um, and I always hate to pay you a compliment, Lance. But um, <laughs> no, it is as we've talked about and, and I've talked about with a number of other guests on this channel, right? Like that is that that is a great argument for active management in this cycle of, of the markets, right? Um, where you you really can't just pick the trend and ride the sector and all that stuff, right? You really have to look at the company and the company's prospects here. Um, uh, and that, you know, 
makes a ton of sense. It's kind of basic investing success anyways, right? Yeah. I mean, straight out of the Benjamin Graham school, right? But we've been so used to, to sector-based, index-based, you know, ETF-based investing here, and it's been relatively easy. We've been trying to beat the drum for why it's probably not going to work as well going forward. And I think you just made a great case for it, right? Which is, hey, if we end up having a, a, a really bad recession, it's going to be super important to have picked the real winners anyways. <laughs> but but um, but even in an uncertain world, right, where we're not sure what's going to happen, um, you the one thing you can control is, okay, I can look at the balance sheets of these companies, right? I can see, you know, what their fundamentals are, and I can pick the ones that are least likely to be vulnerable to the things I'm worried about or more likely to benefit if things aren't as bad as I think and, and these guys are going to ride well, right? So it's it's you're making a really good case for the importance of, of, of active management. Uh, maybe one of the best that I've sort of heard in a, in a practical way on this channel so far. It's, it's going to be interesting, you know, going forward too, because, you know, here, here's a thesis for you. And this is why I think that, and I, and I honestly believe that this may turn out to be the case over the next five to 10 years. You know, we've talked about valuations. We talked, so all the stimulus now out of the economy, people have less money to spend. Yep. So let's build the let's build the thesis here that we're going to have slower economic, economic growth is going to go back to 2%, maybe less. Inflation is going to drop to 2%. That's going to impede profit margins because companies can't charge as much. Um, all of a sudden, that really means that the S&P as a whole is going to be very range bound. So if you're an indexer just buying ETFs, over the next 10 years, you may not make a lot of money, right? I mean, yeah, you just, get the lost decade. Yeah. 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 I mean, we just see markets trade between 4,000 and 4,500 and back and forth, right? Because valuations still need to contract to match earnings growth that is still too high, right? So earnings growth has got to come down which really sets up the case for an active stock picker that can look for companies that are able to grow earnings or have some type of inherent edge on the overall market. Microsoft's a good example of that, right? And they reported earnings, terrible guidance. The CFO came out and just said, our board guides, terrible. <laughs> and the stock was down like four and a half percent the next morning and it rallied back. And the reason is, is that, they're investing $10 billion into chat GPT, right? Which is going to change the dynamic for their search engine, which is Bing. Well, if you look at search engine um, revenue, right? Or actually, let me rephrase that. If you look at who owns the, the who owns search, basically, um, eight, Bing has about an 8% hold on the entire search market. There's a few other ones that have little small one percent. I'm amazed that Bing even has that much still. Yeah, yeah. And then then the rest of it's all Google, right? Yeah. I mean, Google owns you know roughly ninety percent of the entire search market. And I have beat this drum just so you know for yeah. more than a decade, having come from Silicon Valley, which is how that is not you know violating antitrust. I don't know, but, but go ahead. Well, uh, Congress is just passing a bill to start the, the process of breaking up their ad uh, ad business. Right, right, which is a good first step. And I mean, and sorry, this is just a personal soapbox of mine, but like it's been 20 years that they've had like 90 plus market share. I mean, well, <laughs> this is not something that just happened overnight. Now, now look, now look, I'm going to show my age here, but there was a day back in history where, you know, Ma Bell owned the entire telephone market, right? When you still had to dial long distance. 
And then we broke them all up. So we have AT&T, Southwestern Bell, and then we put them all back together again. So, right. But know. we did get a burst of, of innovation in telecommunications through, yeah, through that yeah, process. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 Uh, puts them all back together. Anyway, uh, but, but here's the interesting story. If ChatGPT does what it's supposed to do, and let's say that Microsoft can just add, just take 5% of, of the search from Google, right? Just drop them from 90 to 85 that's a massive amount of revenue. It's a gargantuan. Yeah. And sorry to jump back into this, but I used yeah. to work for Yahoo. And I mean, I remember the days of Yahoo trying to hold on to its, its search share, which it just kept losing to Google. 1% of search share, even back then, I mean, I'm talking back in like the 2006, yeah. seven, or it was a massive amount of money. I can't even fathom what it is today. Yeah. No, it's, it's just, it's billions upon billions of dollars. And then you throw in, you know, cloud storage, um, you throw in, gaming and and everything else that Microsoft is going on i mean their cash flow streams going forward are just gargantuan right um but there but my point is is here's a company that can grow earnings even in a recessionary environment because i tell you what if you have people getting laid off work guess what they're doing they're sitting at home gaming on right. Xbox, right <laughs> wow we're gonna, we're going we're going to move from the um was it what was it called? The work from home stocks to now the stuck at home stocks. Uh, basically, yeah. And so, you know, but those are the things you want to look. And so, but back to stock picking, right? This this is the whole point. So I want to look for things that have really just have an opportunity to grow, and even a recessionary environment can grow well. This is why we we just we bought a little starter position this past week in uh, Stanley Black and Decker. Stock has been crushed. It's down 60, 70% from its peak. Um, you know, it's got very strong earnings growth. And, and we actually just wrote it. So, you know, we write a daily commentary on our website that we publish every morning uh, at 7.30. And uh, this week we published a piece talking about value investing and what's value and what's not. And we compared Stanley Black & Decker to Procter & Gamble, also which we own, right? We also own Procter & Gamble. Um, two very different companies. Stanley Black & Decker is clearly a value company, growing earnings, deeply depressed in valuations, you know, and, and is in a space where if you have a recession, people are going to have to start doing home repairs themselves. So it's a, it's a really kind of a recession type stock that can play in that market. Procter & Gamble hasn't grown sales in five years, but it's considered a value stock. And so we did some research, right? And this is what the article is about. So if you want to read the article, it's on our website. My actually Michael Leibowitz wrote it. It's on our website talking about the value investing. Um, realinvestmentadvice.com. Surprised you didn't mention it, but I thought I'd plug it for you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you go to the website, it's there. Um, but here's the point about this is that this goes back to that passive indexing problem, right? Stan so we looked up IVE, which is the Vanguard Value ETF, right? When you look down the holdings of the value index, Stanley Black & Decker is way down that list. It's a very, very small holding of that value index. So every time somebody buys into the value index, it gets a very little smidge, right? Well, the number one holding in the growth, one of the top holdings in the growth ETFs is Microsoft, right? So Microsoft, gets, it gets a big plug every time somebody, it's also in the value index, by the way. Microsoft is not a value stock. It trades at eight times price to sales, but it's in the value index. Procter & Gamble, is also one of the largest holdings in the value index. So this goes back. So this goes back to what we said previously: is you've got to be careful what you pick because 
part of the flows into the market and what drives asset prices higher is all these people putting money into ETFs, which are now in 401k plans, which are now in SEP IRAs, which are now right. in pension plans. And so there's all these flows that are coming into ETFs that are driving the prices of these individual securities higher, even though they're not really valued. Apple's in like 400 different you know, ETFs. So every time those ETFs get it, Apple gets share prices uh, go up. But why do we own both, right? Well, Lance, you said you you buy value. Yeah, we bought value, Stanley Black & Decker. We love the stock fundamentally, right? But this is going to be a stock that's going to take a while for it to work out. So we're going to sit and collect the dividend for a while, waiting for that thesis to play out. If we get a rotation to value, Procter & Gamble, which is not a value stock, is going to go up because people will chase value in a recession, and that's going to push Procter & Gamble higher. So there's the conundrum on portfolio management and why stock picking is going to matter going forward. Yeah, it actually really is interesting. It's sort of a, a view into the brain of, of a portfolio manager like you in terms of like, again, you play the market you have, not the market the way you think it should be, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, this this thing too about, um, you know, the market can maybe go nowhere, um, but individual stocks can, you know, have a very different story. Um, I'm sort of, I'm beginning to think that the first half of this year, um, you know, about a month or so ago, the guys I was interviewing, like the Felix Zulofs of the world, you know, were saying, I, I think Q2 is going to be pretty bad. Like things are going to weaken into Q, you know, into Q2. And then we're going to have some big you know, pivot or whatever, and then bonds are going to do well. And then stocks will wait a little bit and then recover. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but now with, um, two things, one China reopening. Right. Uh, yeah. And then um, uh, something you had mentioned last week that I've been chewing on since, which is, uh, you know, we're seeing these companies that are laying off workers. Right. They're beginning to cut costs. Right. And so at some point they'll be able to do less. Right. With fewer resources. But um, until for, for a while, their their financials actually improve look better, right? Because you cut all the costs and you still have all the inventory that you had bought, you know, before and you're selling that at, at a good margin, whatever. Um, so, you know, your your profits look pretty good for a quarter or two before they start shrinking from the reduced productivity. Right. So I now see, you know, a decent chance that, you know, performance might might not be all that bad for the next quarter or two, even if at the macro level, things are worsening, Right. Um, and so a big question is, okay, great. Well, what companies are going to benefit from those two trends, right? Yeah, right. those may actually perform pretty well over the next couple of quarters. Yeah. And, and look, and this is why, look, uh, you know, and this is why it's important when you're managing your portfolio. You know, you, could, you, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me. People get into this camp where they've got to be one thing or another, right? I'm a zebra or I'm a, a, an elephant, right? So I'm a zebra. So all I can buy is small cap stocks. That's all I can buy. Um, or, you know, I'm an elephant. So all I can buy is large cap stocks. And, you know, or what, or I'm only going to buy value stocks, or I'm only going to buy growth stock. Why can't you have a little of everything, right? Why can't you have some of this and some of that, and some of this other thing that over here that is helping hedge the portfolio against potential outcomes? Because look, we don't know. I don't know. Adam doesn't know. Nobody knows what's going to happen next quarter, quarter after that, quarter after that. I mean, we may have a terrible bear market and a recession in 2024, right? Because to your point, China's reopening, we'll get a lot of capital flows from that. You know, that's, you know, they, if they continue to reopen, that liquidity push could help, you know, keep markets elevated longer than we expect. 
Um, the Fed, you know, may pause here for a bit and and markets, you know, perform better, expecting that the Fed's going to cut rates sooner than not. And so, so what I'm saying is like, you know, our best expectations are is all this data says we're going to have a recession in three months or six months or whatever. But what happens if that some some of these exogenous events that are going on kind of push things off, you know, for another six months or another year? And you know, those those are the, that's what I'm saying is like, you know, if you pay attention to your portfolio, look at look at what's performing. Um, you know, we run screens every week in our newsletter. So every week in our newsletter, we've got our we got screens based on relative strength, screens based on momentum. And, you know, there's always like 20 stocks in there that are the top of their momentum or top relative strength or top technicals. And those give you some idea of like, hey, these stocks, regardless of what my outlook is, these stocks are performing. Why? Why are these stocks performing? And that's where you start your homework. It's like, okay, what does somebody else potentially know about these companies that I don't? And how do I factor that into? Yes, some of it's short covering. Some of it's technically fundamentally crap companies that you don't want to own, but they're running up because of, of short covering and things that are going on in the markets. But then there's also some good quality companies in there that have been doing very well. Visa has been doing I've been, I'm kicking myself because I wanted to buy Visa like three months ago and talk myself out of it back then. So I'm like, well, consumer spending is going to slow down. That's going to impact the revenue that Visa collects because they just get they just charge it. You know, they get money every time somebody swipes a card. Right. So if people start slowing down their spending, that's going to slow down the revenue for Visa. I still think that's the case. But that stock's had a huge run. It's, it's trading near all-time highs. It's in the value index, by the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and it's in the growth index, too, uh, by the way. And it's in the queues. So, you know, it gets a lot of passive flows. But, but, but there, it's, a, it's a trade I missed even because I, I allowed, instead of paying attention to what the price of the company was doing, I allowed my thesis of the economy to derail my decision. And that's that's the part that we've got to be as investors much more cognizant of, particularly as we're in a transition within the economy. The herd's always right in the middle. The herd's always wrong at both ends, right? The herd's wrong at the bottom and the wrong at the top. And the question is, if we're at the bottom of the market, the herd's wrong. If the, if we're not at the bottom of the market, we'll find out. <laughs> but, you know, I think you just got to pay more attention to what, what individual companies are doing and take advantage of what the market gives you. All right. And, you, you know, there may be a few viewers here who are, you know, frustrated in the sense of like, oh, my God, like a, a month or two ago, it felt like this was for sure, you know, going to new lows. Um, honestly, I still personally believe that it is. But but to your point, Lance, I'm very open to the fact it may not happen. Right. You know, so we need to be mindful of exactly the things you're telling us about here. And I think that's the main thing I want folks to take away from this conversation is, is you know, you you can't fall in love with the thesis, and and you shouldn't fall in love with the thesis, and and allocate all of your capital for that thesis coming out the way in which you exactly think it's going to play out. You know, as we've talked about many times on this program, you got to diversify, you got to hedge, you got to you know have part of your portfolio allocated to the okay, what if I'm totally wrong thesis, right? You want to have some exposure to the other direction. Um, Lance is just in a great job of explaining all that more than I can. So I'll, I'll just leave it there. All right, Lance, I want to move on here just, just to make sure that we hit the other topics in time. And I want to get to your trades as well in a bit. You've already shared two, but I do want to give you a full section to talk about your trades. Um, all right. I want to go now into a market that I feel much more confident in predicting its trajectory, <laughs> which is the housing market. Yep. Right. We talk about this every week. Um, 
I just wanted to bring up two new pieces of data here. One is that um, buying and selling conditions, both buying and selling conditions are worsening. Um, buying conditions are like almost the worst they've been. Um, they're down uh, to the lows that they were in the early 80s. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, is this a good time to buy a home? Buyers are saying absolutely not, right? But what's interesting is we're now seeing a pretty pronounced rollover in the sellers saying that this is, is this now a good time to sell a home? Um, been a seller's market for a good while now. Um, all of a sudden, sellers are really beginning to get a sour, sickening feeling inside their stomachs here. So I've got a chart I'm putting up while I'm saying all this, Lance, that shows this. Um, but uh, I would not be surprised if we get to a point here in this chart pretty soon where we are at decadal lows in it being both a good time to buy and both a good time to sell. Uh, but I am betting that the good time to buy is going to start, it's going to hit some bottom and start picking itself up off the floor um, simply because I I personally feel that prices have got to come down. And so the affordability is going to start to have to get better here. You're nodding as I'm saying all this. And of course, you you know, you, you made a big bet on this by selling your home and, and renting until better prices came along. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I, I told you, I've been putting offers in on houses and I actually got a bite last week. So uh, we're negotiating now. So. Oh, congratulations. Well, we'll see. We're not there yet, but you know, I, it's like, like I said, you know, the, the, you know, in the air again. So, you know, if you're thinking about buying a house, remember what, what Adam and I are about to talk about is very macro. Right. Housing is always location specific. You know, houses where Adam lives are not going to fall as much in price, theoretically, because he's in California, as they might in, you know, Wyoming, where, you know, there's lots of space to build stuff. The, right. The, the non-Jackson Hole part of Wyoming. But yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there, so just always remember that when we're saying things, you go, well, Adam, you know, I'm looking to buy a house and Adam says home prices are going to fall a lot more. So I'm just going to wait. And then all of a sudden, you know, the perfect house comes and, and passes you by and you don't buy it because you're convinced it's going to go down more. And then the house gets sold and, you know, prices start to rise. The thing to watch, just remember, just if you're then this is about buying a house. So first of all, the thing to watch is, is watch mortgage rates. If mortgage rates start to come down pretty sharply, right, that's going to start putting a bottom into the housing market because people are coming back out and say, oh, rates are coming back down. Now I can buy, instead of there being 7% mortgages, if we're back down to 4 or 5% mortgages, it's going to attract buyers into the market that want to buy a house at a lower price and, and, and not miss out, right? Because they're going to go, okay, prices have come down. I'm going to come by because now mortgage rates are back down. So watch mortgage rates because that'll start to tell you where there, there's a floor somewhere in the markets. But again, it's also, also understand your market where you're looking to buy a house because that market is very location specific. Um, you know, and like this particular house that we're negotiating on is in a landlocked area. There's, there's just no more room to build more houses. It's just because it's, it's wrapped by a, a, a loop of a freeway. So, you know, it's a very big loop, but there's just no more land to go. So these houses are basically built and torn down repeatedly. So it's just because there's no more land. So the only way if you want to build a bigger house, you got to tear it down and build something else. So those prices don't fluctuate a whole lot. If you're in an area where there's just plenty of room to keep building out into Never Neverland, those prices are going to come down a lot more because I can just buy a piece of land down the road from you and build a house cheaper, right? So those are just, just remember those things. Okay, so having said that, now let's go to the, the conversation on housing. Yeah, look, you know, housing is a function of, 
you know, interest rates, and it's a function of the ability to come up with a down payment, and it's an ability to qualify for the mortgage. So if I'm losing my job because of the economy, you know, it's going to be hard for me to get a mortgage. If I can't save money for a down payment, and, and look, this is what drove the housing market, you know, and I just wrote that article last week on housing, um, you know, because all that stimulus money that we threw in the economy, people all of a sudden they got a free down payment from the government. They're like, I'm going to go buy a house. And they were buying houses sight unseen and just, I got to buy a house. You know, everybody says I have to buy a house. And so they all went and bought houses and drove prices through the roof. So you that the, the process of working through that is, is going to take you know more time. And if you get into a recession, start getting job losses. Um, and most importantly, if you take a look, pay attention to what banks have been doing. Loan loss reserves at banks, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Bank of America, loan loss reserves have been going through the roof. And they're they're they are preparing for people to start defaulting on their mortgages, start defaulting on credit cards. Those rates are still very low right now. We're not seeing a big pickup in default rates yet, but that's what the banks are saying is coming. And, you know, if you start getting into a default cycle, banks are not going to want to make you a mortgage. You talk about tight lending standards. They're going to go, Adam, sorry, buddy, you're a YouTube person. I'm not loaning you money. (laughs) 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 Uh, You know, whatever. Uh, It's just going to become, you know, banks are going to come up with every excuse in the book not to loan you money. And then that's which is going to start bringing prices of homes down because, again, you extract demand. From a supply of homes, which is supply has come up, you're going to see you're going to see those prices come down. Now, the interesting thing is, existing home sales, those inventories haven't risen a lot. There's not a lot of existing homes, and what and this is something Adam and I have talked about before. There's a lot of people sitting on their homes right now. They have all their equity and they have no money saved up. Right, the average American has five hundred dollars through those. The majority of Americans' net worth is in their house. And so right now, a lot of people are sitting on their house and they're going, oh, all my equity, I've got all this equity in my house, you know, so I'm good. And they haven't been drugged to market yet. But if prices keep coming down, there's going to be a point, as we've said before, that all those people watching that that equity in their, their home or road, they're going to go, man, I better if I'm going to if I'm going to lock in my house, if I'm going to lock in this this gain in my house, I better do it now. Right, and, especially seniors that have been expecting to use yeah. that equity as as their retirement piggy bank. Yeah, correct. And so that's 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 the hiccup. I think later this year, um, potentially we you know because look, there's a ton of supply of new homes. In fact, if you look at uh, Beezer Homes, I believe it was just announced like 63 or 73 percent cancellation rates on their on their new home builds. I that mean, was that was KB Homes, and it was 68 percent yeah. cancellation rate. Yeah. yeah, see, I got the name wrong and percentages wrong, but I was in the <laughs> so yeah. But but that's but that's what's happening on the new home side. There's lots of inventory of new homes, but existing homes not yet. But I think that's going to change. Yeah, I, I agreed. Like I said, I, I feel more confident in predicting the trajectory of this market. Now, again, we could be surprised, but but yeah, this well, one again, seems. Well, and 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 again, the thing that'll surprise us is going to be the drop in mortgage rates. Mortgage rates. Yeah. If mortgage rates drop sharply, right? Because the Fed's cutting rates now, and you know, if the Fed backpedals on their quantitative tightening and all that, rates are going to plunge lower, and that's going to put a bottom in the housing market. So that'll be the thing that makes us wrong. But outside of that, I don't disagree with you at all. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll know when that happens, so we can make that audible if and when it does. Um, so I just want to say too, um, not only is this two guys' opinions, but 
Goldman Sachs actually just came out and they said, um, yes, there's a big housing correction going on. And and they, <laughs> I'm impressed or surprised they use words this inflammatory. They said, we're going to see 2008 style declines in a number of markets. And they singled out um, San Jose, Austin, Phoenix, and San Diego uh, in particular. And, and for them, 2008 style corrections are like 25% or more. So, um, you know, even the even the Goldman Sachs of the world are are ringing this bell. Um, yeah. All right. I want to uh, go ahead. Reg, real quick, by the way, Austin's a great example of what we're talking about. Um, there is land between Austin and West Texas, miles of it. So, you know, there's you know, there there's it's not like California. Like if I want to live in San Diego. Right. There's only so much land between the mountains and the ocean to build. Right. It's not that way in Austin. Austin, you can build for miles in any direction, and and so right. I, so to to their point, those prices have become so inflated in Austin because all the Californians were moving to Austin, and, and they were like, these houses are cheap, and they were way overpaying for houses in Austin to to buy whatever they wanted to buy. That that has a huge correction potential. Uh, Absolutely. And this is a great segue into what I'm going to talk about next. Um, in addition to that, um, it was a hot market and developers for the past bunch of years have been building units there that are now finally beginning to flood into the market. Um, you know, they had been paused for a while during the pandemic, but now you have all this new supply coming in, right? Right as the time that that mortgage rates have gone up and that demand is cooling, right? So it's just totally worsening the situation. And of course, Austin's a big tech economy. So a lot of their biggest employers are now actually laying people off, right? Yeah. So it's this like perfect storm. So that's a good segue into layoffs here. So we talk about this every week. Um, I won't spend too much time going through it, except just to say the contagion continues, right? So, you know, some people try to dismiss it and say, ah, it's just like a Silicon Valley problem, right? It's just the, the big tech companies that had these massive workforces that yes, they had a ton of bloat. You and I have talked about that. I think they need to cut way more people than they have. Elon Musk is showing the way with what he's done with Twitter. Um, but now, you know, it's more companies. So IBM, SAP, yes, these are tech companies, but they're they're like a traditional company than they are like a, you know, Facebook. Um, Dow Chemical, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing this really begin to infect just kind of, you know, more and more of just mainstream corporate America. Um, rumors at Disney that they're going to have uh, a bunch of layoffs soon. Um, and that's a good sign, you know, of consumer spending slowing down, right? Um, uh, so I, th there was a, um, a article that just came out in Fortune. I'll put up the headline here. The great resignation was fueled by workers' obsession with flexibility. Big tech layoffs have scared employees reprioritizing what they need. So I put out a, uh, well, I, I was saying, you know, almost a year ago, uh, making the prediction that the Great Resignation uh, was going to um, was going to metastasize into the Great Unretirement Party or the Great Please Sir May I Have My Job Back Party, <laughs> and I think this headline is showing that that's indeed what what's beginning to happen here. And I put out a tweet last summer. I'll try to find it and put it up here if I can. Um, but it said, "I'm doing this from memory." You can see it on the screen here. But it was something like. Um, uh, you know, the, the 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 investment with the best ROI over the next year is going to be keeping your job, yeah. right? And I think we're we're all of a sudden seeing you know the world wake up to that, which is it was it was all about I want to go quit my job and do van life uh, because I don't want to be tied to meetings or you know an employer that doesn't take my feelings into account. 
And I think we're we're still at the early stages of this. We're, we're beginning to to get the like, okay, my stimmy checks have dried up. Uh, you know, I've been laid off from my employer for a couple of months now. I've gone through you know my my severance payment, whatever, and I, my fridge is empty. And geez, I kind of need a job. What can I do? Oh no, we talked about this before. You know, one of the one of the sad byproducts of you know this kind of work from home thing that we had in 2021, 2022 is that you know people got used to this idea that i could just job hop from one job to another and you know employers don't like that um by the way because when i hire somebody to come work at our firm we spend a lot of time and money to train them to get them to do a job you know provide them a lot of resources so they can do their job well it's a very costly exercise to hire an employee it's not it's not free um, and so if we're going to invest into, you know, supporting and developing an employee, the one thing we want is to make sure that they're going to stay at the job. So one of the first things that, you know, we do when we look to hire, and look, I'm anecdotal, right? But uh, a lot of companies are this way. The first thing they're starting to do now is look, how many jobs have you had over the last two, three years? And if you've been job hopping, that's going to push you down to the bottom of the list for hiring because right. they're, they're looking for stability as well as talent. Right. Right. In addition to that, and you've said this recently, too, is and if they see that you haven't been working right for the past two years or so because yeah. you did van life or whatever. Right. Then it's like, well, you know, yeah. sorry, buddy, I want somebody who's got some immediate real world experience here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and this we, we talked about this, I think, last week, there was a poll out that, you know, the 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 number one job hire is being hired from another company. And it's people that if, if you've kept your job. At another company, you are much more valuable than having been laid off or terminated or been out of the workforce for a while. Because again, if, if you've kept your job, I want you because you must be good at your job. Whatever that job is, you must be good enough to have held on to that job. So right, right. And, and a lot of our viewers here, you know, this channel skews older, right? It's two-thirds, 45 plus. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that you know, this great resignation, probably the biggest chunk of it, the biggest cohort were people that retired early. Right. Oh, I can retire sooner than I thought because back at the end of 2021, gosh, stocks are at all time highs. My portfolio looks great. Right. So uh, those people, I think, are in a potentially really hard position if they have to come back to work when companies are not hiring much or shrinking right their workforces. And they're basically um, saying, all right, look, um, we can now be really super choosy. And yes, you've got experience, retired person, but you've been out now for two years or so. And, you know, this guy who, who's continued working, he's more attractive to us. And of course, especially in, in, in big tech, and I think probably in, increasingly in other parts of corporate America, this is not fair, but they're like, you know, these younger employees who will work for less and, you know, we'll get somebody who's willing to stay later and, you know, hustle harder and is, is half the cost or whatever, right? So, um, you know, it, it's not very fair, but but I, I, I'm concerned for the cohort that retired early and, and just realized now after what happened over the past year, they don't have enough to remain retired and they've got to come in and they've got to fight with, you know, HR departments that now have a lot more bargaining power. Um, and there's a lot of younger people that that are saying, look, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll work for a lot less if you just give me that that first job. Well, this not is the first know, job, but. 
Yeah, but you know, I, I wrote articles about the, you know the whole fire movement, which was you know financially independent, retire early. Yeah, and you remember that about three, four years ago, it was 2018, 2019. There was this big thing about the fire movement. If you can just save up three hundred thousand dollars, you invest that at eight percent in the market, you make eight percent every year, and you can live off that, live in a van, drive around the country, you know, live your life. And so there was this whole movement uh, called the fire movement, and, and which is all great, fine and dandy until you wind up in this situation where markets aren't doing what they're supposed to do. You're not making your 8%. Now you're drawing down into your principal to live on it, but the market's not generating what's supposed to do to fill your lifestyle. And now you've been out of the workforce for four, five, six years. And you say, okay, now I need to go get a job. Well, the problem is, is, is that you've lost that, that time out of the market. You've lost your skill set. And employers are looking for relevant, updated, you know, you know, resumes and skills to put people to work. So there's there's going to be this this problem. And again, we saw in Houston, we saw this in particular because you know, there's not many companies anymore that have pension plans, right? But we have a lot of them in Houston because of the oil and gas companies. And, and so in 2020, there was a whole rash of individuals that retired not by choice, they were asked to retire because they were at the right age and the, the companies were wanting to downsize anyway. And they were giving very nice packages, by the way, you know, to retire. But, you know, now they, to your point, they've been out, they've been retired, and now they're realizing they need to go back to work. And so this is this is kind of an interesting transition to try to go from that, I was asked to retire space now going back to work. And so a lot of this great retirement that we saw was not by choice. Um, some of it was, but not all of it was. The people were asked to retire, um, but now they're going to come back into the workforce. Well, that's going to take jobs away from other people that want those same jobs. So you're going to have this competition for jobs as well. Yeah. All right. Well, it's going to be interesting to play, see play out, but I'm just going to underscore my regular message, which is this is something to really prepare for folks, right? If you work for a paycheck, um, you really got to be doing the sort of wargaming now of, okay, what happens if, you know, my hours get cut back or God forbid, they just get cut and to totally because I walk in one day and there's a pink slip, um, whatever. Um, this is the type of stuff, this is the human cost, right, that a recession can bring. And for all of the macro data that Lance and I have been talking about, the odds of a, you know, serious recession with lots of job losses um, is high enough that you have to take it seriously. You do not want to be kind of sleepwalking into um, that type of environment. So anyways, all right, on that happy note, let's switch over to trades, Lance. Um, you mentioned two, you mentioned Black & Decker and Microsoft. Did you guys make any other trades over the past yeah. week? So yeah, just we, we've just kind of been uh, fleshing the portfolio out a little bit, kind of uh, for the new year, first of all, just um, but because the market's been running and, and we've now, again, we talked about these kind of technical formations over the last couple of weeks, there's an inverse head and shoulders at the, you know, looking back at the um, kind of the June, July bottoms, the October lows and these December lows, you've got a very nice head and inverse head and shoulders pattern, which is suggestive of a bottom in the market. Um, you've now broken above the neckline of that pattern, which confirms that you're now in a, in a more bullish period of the market. You've broken the downtrend from the January 2022 highs, confirming that the bull market is in, in process right now. Now, this doesn't, this is, this. we're talking about weeks to months, yep. right? We're talking about the next great secular bull market. We're not saying that at all. Um, also, the 50-day moving average is very close now to crossing above the 200-day moving average, which is that technical golden cross. Now, 
again, there's times that that has failed. It doesn't always work, but it's a decent indicator that suggests a, it gives markets really good support. When the 50-day cross above the 200 moving average, that's a good floor for the markets to kind of work, work off of. So that's very close to occurring. The MACD buy signal is still in place. We're not overly bought there yet. So again, suggest that prices can still move higher here. So in other words, all this is saying, all what all that tells you is just simply that there's momentum to the markets. Despite everything else that, that you want to believe or think, the market is gaining some traction, right? So just think about a car rolling downhill in neutral. Um, as it's going downhill, it just keep, kind of keeps picking up speed until it hits the bottom of the hill and then starts to roll up the other side. We're in the process of, we're probably closer to the bottom of the hill than not. Um, so, you know, the market, but the market has room to start rolling up that other hill before it starts to kind of peter out. So give this market some room to operate here. Don't fight it, you know, tooth and nail. Um, you know, let's make some money with it while we can. Um, and so because of that, we also know that probably later this summer, as we said earlier, you know, you're going to have a much lower economic environment. Earnings are going to come down. Profit. Look, if inflation comes down, profit margins are going to contract, period. Right. So that's in, and Microsoft is a good example of that they warned about profit margins later this year. So, you know, those are things that was coming to balance. Microsoft, but we've owned Microsoft, like I said, for a long time. Uh, we sold half the position early last year. So we're just basically bought back at a much lower level of what we sold previously. Um, we've added some value dividend stocks to our portfolio because in a recessionary environment, value dividends should hold up better. So it gives us a little bit of a cushion. Um, and so we added T. Rowe Price, uh, Stanley Blacker and Decker and um, Altria, which have you know very nice yields on them. So if those stocks do nothing, they just kick off income into the portfolio. So again, we're just continuing to kind of flesh out. Now we haven't, we, we've started to work on our bond positions a bit. Um, we're probably pretty close now to starting to increase our longer duration, the kind of increase. We've been getting rid of the very short duration bonds, moving that into equities right now. Um, but we're going about to start increasing the duration length on our bond portfolio as well, because we're probably getting fairly close to where we're going to start seeing more uh, uh, sustained downtrend in yields over the course of the next few months. So that's kind of where we are right now. Okay, great. Um, all right. And so just on, on that bond part, um, you know, I know we've been tracking this for a long time, but it sounds like you feel like we are indeed getting closer to that, that, that moment you've been waiting for where the bond yields uh, really start coming down and, and yep. that price appreciation, especially in the longer duration side of things, really begins to take off. Yeah, and really kind of, we'll probably actually buy bonds next week. We're waiting for the Fed uh, to come out because if he comes out and he hikes by 50, uh, 25 basis points or and delivers a super hawkish message, or if by some reason he comes out and hikes 50, we don't expect that, but just if he did, um, that's probably going to pop yields um, very short term. And that'll be our entry point to yeah. try to find something. So, so we'll sidestep that risk just by waiting until after he yeah. speaks. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll see what bonds do, and then we'll we'll go from there. All right. Well, in beginning to wrap up, I want to um, I want to draw folks' attention uh, to a video that we did this week uh, with Tom Wilwright. Um, this was on taxes. I think I gave a little preview of it last week on this program, Lance. But um, it was such a great discussion. And it's a topic that you think, okay, taxes, probably the most boring thing ever. Super fascinating, super, super germane to wealth building. 
Right. We talked a little bit about this uh, last week, so I won't totally rehash this, except to say, if you haven't watched it yet, folks, go watch it. The feedback from the people who watched it is literally, like I just said, like, ah, I didn't really think I was going to enjoy this. And I was riveted the whole time. Um, folks are dying to have Tom come back on the program. Um, really goes to show, as we were talking about, what a great partner, a good uh a good, a real, you know, a, a truly good accountant who kind of brings proactive ideas to the table um, is in combination with your financial advisor, right? It's like having a great defensive line in addition to a great offensive line, right? Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that a really good uh, CPA brings to you is the ability to say, "Hey, look, um, yes, given what you're doing, I can." I, I could do your taxes for you. But if you were to do these other things, I could save you a lot more in taxes, right? And a lot of it's just, you know, basically thinking creatively about what's there in the tax code. And um, a, a good example of this that I, I took a photo of that I'll, I'll try to put up here as I tell this short little story. Um, <clears throat> there is um, a guy in my town who uh, launches restaurants. And uh, he's actually been really successful at it. T turns out he's maybe not the nicest guy. He's been in trouble in the papers. Um, so if anybody knows who I'm talking about here, I'm not saying he's he's the world's most magnificent individual. Um, but uh, he has been a successful restaurateur and um, just a super creative thinker. And an example of this is, is he created this really popular kind of California cuisine restaurant uh, in my town called Handline. And he bought an old Foster's freeze, which um, had laid dormant for, I don't know, 20, 30 years or whatever. When I moved to town, it was just this defunct, you know, old Foster's freeze building that nobody was doing anything in. So he bought the building. It's kind of a cool architecture. And he 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 made this really cool riff on it, you know, when he when he renovated it and launched the new restaurant. Um, and somebody who had been involved in that project told me, like, when you walk into the restaurant, there are these big kind of like um, rebar wire cages and they're filled with all these rocks. And it's this kind of different, but kind of interesting design element that you have to walk through to get into this restaurant. And um, I just thought this guy had kind of, you know, interesting design tastes or whatever. But I found out the story behind them, which was as they were, as they were, you know, renovating this building. Um, if you, if you renovate more than a certain percentage of the property, the property taxes have to get re-rated and they get, you know, re-rated much higher, especially for a really old property like this one. And so the, the guy who owned the restaurant said, well, okay, so what's the percentage, right? Like, what do I need to keep of the original property? And they told him, and um, they were clearly going to go beyond that. And as he's thinking about it, he looks at the the, the parking lot and he said, well, what about, does that asphalt count as part of the property? And they said, yeah, I guess so. So he had it all broken up and he put it into these wire cages and that's the design element you walk through, right? And basically what that did is allowed him to claim that I kept enough of a percentage of the original property <laughs> that it's not classified as a total rebuild. And so my property tax is going to be much lower as a result, right? It's that's just, true. you know, again, just a, an example of the type, if you have that type of creative thinking, you can stay within the letter of the law, but end up having to pay an awful lot less, right? So Cool little story. I see you sort of smiling and nodding as I'm saying this, Lance. Yeah, yeah. It's because, you know, it's interesting because, you know, it's when you hear this story, right, it's, it's you know, and then you juxtapose that story, which is great. So here's that's capitalism at work, right? We talk about capitalism all the time. Mm -hmm. So here's a guy 
that says, I've got a business and I can make it grow and make money and I can save taxes along the way by, you know, working the law. And then, of course, you know, we have this whole other juxtaposition of this, which is, you know, people with a billion dollars worth of net worth need to be taxed, right? Net worth and income are two totally different things, right? We don't tax net worth. We tax income. Right. And, you know, we have a, and so it's it's interesting to see like on TikTok and YouTube and others, you have these whole, you know, these whole debates going on, um, you know, about we need to tax the billionaires on their net worth. We've talked about before, most of these, most of these billionaires, the big chunk of their wealth is their stock, you know, Amazon, Tesla, whatever, that's their wealth. And they don't pay ta- they pay taxes on it when they convert that stock into cash. You know, Elon Musk is one of the highest is pro- is either one of or the highest paying tax individuals in history when he sold that eleven billion dollars worth of stock. I don't think anybody's ever paid more tax than him. Um, but most of these billionaires they pledge their stock for loans that from banks who are happy to loan them the money um, against the stock. And that's how they go fund their lifestyle. It's all in debt. But that's why, that's why, you know, when you look at Jeff Bezos, it's like, well, he didn't pay very much in taxes. Well, yeah, because he's living mostly on debt right now. And his income or his net worth is his stock, right? And so, you know, again, this goes back to your story, which is a, a really good case here about how capitalism and taxation works. And, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. If you if you don't like the fact that this guy is going to pay lower taxes on his property, you need to go change the tax code. And that's, you know, but smart business people, if you want to take advantage of capitalism and participate in the capitalistic society, learn how to do that and learn how to take advantage of the tax code that, that exists. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way the game is. Yeah, well, that, that's what that's what Tom says. He says, like it or not, he said, you're in partnership with the government on this. Yeah. And said you can either fight them, or you can, you know, work with them. Right? Yeah. That's your choice. Right? They're going to be your partner, whether you want them to be or not. Right? Um, and he and he basically talks about the tax code, which is like, like I said, it's like seventy five thousand dollars, seventy five thousand pages long. They estimate it would take a regular person something like fourteen weeks to read the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's like if you just kept reading for twenty four hours straight. Right? Yeah. Um, and uh, he says it, it, the tax code is basically like it, it's one line that basically says all income is taxable unless we say it isn't. And then another line that says uh, you can't deduct any of your expenses unless we say you can. And then the whole rest of that, the rest of the remaining 75,000 pages are just all the ways in which you basically can get a tax deduction. Right. Sure. Yeah. And so he's just like, you just need to know. You just it's giving you the rule book, right? And you just need to follow it. Right. And that's what this guy did with you know his his yeah. building there, right? He just said, Tell me the rules. Okay, I'll find a way to work within the rules, right? Absolutely. I saw a great uh, I saw a great comment the other day that uh, says, you know, it's tax season coming up. So this is the the annual event where the IRS says, okay, please tell us how much money you made. And you have to kind of guess at how much tax you owe based on your documents. So you are you don't know the tax code, so you're kind of guessing at how much tax you need to pay instead of the IRS just telling you how much you need to pay because they know, because when you submit your documents, everybody says, oh no, you didn't pay enough. Well, why did you start with? I know, I know. <laughs> I, the, and that's what's so frustrating because when they tell you, oh, well, we, we looked at your taxes. We think you owe us another 500 bucks or whatever. It's like, you don't have any way to appeal that or anything like that. You, 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 it's it's not, a, it's not a discussion, right? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you just should have told me at the start what they were, right? It's a um, big game. 
It is. It is. So anyways, but again, underscoring why having a good proactive guide to really, you know, help you find the opportunities here is literally can be incredibly valuable in terms of what you can save. So folks, again, if you haven't watched that interview with with Tom, uh, I'll put up a link to it right here. Um, all right. So um, in beginning to wrap things up here, um, uh, I want to just flag we're, we're continuing to build a pipeline of really great, interesting interview guests coming up. So I thought I'd give you guys a quick sneak, sneak peek on who's up for the next couple of weeks. Uh, so far, we've got uh, for next week, we've got Stephanie Pomboy, we've got Alf Pecatiello, uh, we've got Jim Rickards. I've already recorded the uh, Rickards one. It's phenomenal, folks. You're going to love it. Um, then soon after that, we've got guys like Sven Henrik, uh, Thomas Thornton, Fred Hickey from uh, the High Tech Strategist, been trying to get him for a long time. Uh, John Hathaway, I mentioned him earlier. Gordon Long's coming back on the program. Got a bunch of other irons in the fire with some other folks too, but that's lineup of folks that are locked in for the next couple of weeks. Um, and then I just want to remind folks that we have the Wealthion conference coming up on March 18th. And we're still building uh, the faculty for that, but I've got most of it together right now. So really quickly, let me just run through the, the major names. Um, we've got Lacey Hunt coming back. He will kick it off like he's done the past couple ones. If you've seen Lacey's past presentations, you know how special those are when I when I tell you that um, that is uh, one of the most valuable parts you get from this conference. Um, Mark Faber is going to be there. Michael Pento. Uh, we're going to have Danielle DiMartino Booth. We're also going to have Stephanie Pomboy as well. Rick Rule is going to make an appearance. He's going to share uh, his top picks across all of the natural resource sectors. We'll have Doomberg there talking about the energy markets. We'll have Nick Jurley there talking about the housing market. I'm trying to see if I can get Lucky, Libu, uh, Lucky Lopez there to talk a little bit more about the car market. Folks really enjoyed his recent video. Um, we'll have Mike Maloney there talking about the precious metals. Uh, we'll have um, Craig Wishner there from Farmland LP talking about farmland investing. Of course, we're going to have um, Lance, uh, maybe even see if we can get Mike Leibowitz to pipe in for a little bit, Lance, um, from RIA. And we're going to have uh, John Lodra and Mike Preston from New Harbor. Uh, so it is a already a power-packed lineup, but we're going to try to squeeze one or two more folks in there if possible. So um, folks, uh, the promotions for that will start going out soon in terms of telling you where you can go to sign up for it. Uh, alumni, if you've been to previous events, you're going to get your discount code first. Um, and the whole uh, you know page telling you all about the event and, and letting you get a chance to uh, register for it. Uh, will be up online at wealthion.com slash conference. Um, all right. Well, look, um, uh, I know I've been talking about this conference for a little bit. Um, I've been a little bit slow in, in being able to get it ready for you all to engage with it, largely just because we've got so much going on here at Wealthion. So I thought I'd just give you a quick update on the continued success of, of this movement that we've created here. Um, I'll put up uh, a chart here to show you that uh, we're now, I think, doing... Um, I think we're now doing officially more than four and a half million page views a month, uh, which is pretty crazy. That actually puts us two times ahead of what Forbes's YouTube channel had over the past month and about two thirds of what the Economist YouTube channel is doing. So Wealthion is now like in direct competition with these really big, well-established uh, financial brands. Um, it really is pretty amazing what we've all been able to do here. Um, also, um, we have had a PR firm um, approach us that's uh, now beginning to ramp up. And hopefully you're going to start seeing mention of, of Wealthion uh, more in the news. Um, we're really just trying to hopefully get the word out there to folks that there is a place if you want to have um, valuable and just rational, insane 
uh, financial news discussions, um, there finally is a place out there to be able to do that. Um, again, you guys have uh, who are all watching have um, you know made this possible and have been helping spread the word. Um, but um, you know, more and more of the comments that we get from new viewers are that you know uh, I just can't get these kind of discussions you know on TV or or you know in, in the regular financial media publications that I read or watch. Um, and uh, the fact that folks are now beginning to you know have an alternative where they can. Uh, you know, get the kind of what I like to sort of think of as like financially nutritious discussions that I think people really want. Like, like, don't don't give me an opinion, don't sell me a narrative, just tell me what's going on and try to help me understand it. Um, you know, if that's what you guys value, that's what we're going to continue to try to create for you here on Wealthion. Um, all right. Well, in wrapping up here, folks, um, I want to just mention um, or remind folks that uh, if you didn't watch my video interview with Rick Rule earlier this week. Uh, he's got a uh, event coming up on on February 11th, which is his silver boot camp. Every so often, um, Rick finds a commodity is just poised that he thinks to just you know do exceptionally well in the near term future. Uh, he did one of these on uranium back in 2021, um, uh, and uh, is doing one this year uh, on February 11th around silver. Um, and if you watch my video with him earlier this week, you can hear all the reasons why he thinks silver is going to do so well. But the boot camp is really um, talking to a lot of folks that are in the space, uh, mining companies and otherwise, uh, and really trying to help you identify the best opportunities out there to participate in an upwards repricing of silver if one indeed does happen. So uh, if that sounds like that's something of interest to you, uh, go learn more about the event and you can register for it as well just by going to wealthion.com slash silver bootcamp and that URL will redirect you over to, to Rick's event. Um, all right. Well, look, Lance, thanks so much. We're wrapping up here. You did a great job, especially this week, especially in that discussion about active management um, of really underscoring for folks that it is a really hard time for the average investor, especially one that just has a real life, right? They got a real job, they got kids, they got a family. Uh, to try to not just only stay on top of what's happening, but to adjust to these, you know, this unfolding environment that's, you said, you know, is, is causing the need to make all these audible calls as, as we go through the year. Um, and so, again, just want to deliver on our, our perpetual message that most folks should be working with a professional financial advisor who can help guide them through uh, this uncertainty and this changing landscape uh, and, and create for them a portfolio strategy that meets their needs while taking into account all these issues. And folks, if you've got a good one, great, stick with them. They really are priceless. But if you don't have one, highly recommend uh, that you find one um, and or at least get a second opinion from one that does think this way. And to do that, if you'd like to talk to one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses, um, maybe even Lance and his team there at RIA, uh, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there, and you can have a free consultation, free portfolio with these guys. doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with them. They just offer it as a public service. Lance, I'll let you have the last word here as we wrap things up. Uh, let's see what happens next week. Uh, next week's FOMC meeting with the Fed. So that could be the game changer. We'll see. Great. We also get the CPI data next week, do we? Yeah, and then no, I'm right. That's I'm wrong. That, that comes out later on. No, but we do get employment next Friday. After That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, so we could get some some interesting inputs that could change things a little bit here. So big week coming up. Yeah. All right. Well, look, Lance, thanks so much, buddy. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.